considers non-optional or essential features of the capability approach. And then there are is, there is sets of what she calls modules, or you could think of them as, as spokes on the cartwheel, which are, which there's, there are, there's room for choices within the module. So on, on the aim or purpose module, people will have different aims and purposes. But what I'm interested in at this point is the essential core, which she sees as non-negotiable for something to, to fall within this broad family of capabilitarian um, um, theories. So the first thing she suggests, and which, uh, or, or proposes, and which Rosie has already discussed, is that all capabilitarian theories will focus on what a, pe what a person is able to be and to do, her capabilities and the, function and the capabilities that she realizes as functionings. So functionings as ca and, as, and capabilities, the C and, and the F, are then the core concepts. And she says they are the distinctive feature of all capabilitarian theories. So if that's not a part of your theorizing, then you're probably not working within a capabilitarian um, theoretical frame. And she says capabilities capture the opportunities that people have to be able to make choices and to exercise their agency. And again, coming back to the issue of the resource, she, she doesn't use this example, she uses the bicycle example. But um, an education example would be something like, uh, the issue would not be having, having a laptop, for example, but whether a student in higher education can make use of that laptop uh, for critical and, and engaged learning. So the point is, could the student make use of the laptop in this way if she chose to do so. And if she's unable to make use of the laptop in this way, there's a capability gap and we need to start asking questions as to what, what the reason is for that gap. So capabilities is really a space for identifying advantage and disadvantage. The wider and thicker the capability set, the more advantage the individual student is likely to be. The thinner and narrower it is, the more disadvantage the student is likely to be. Um, functionings are important and interesting because they, they reveal to us um, conversion factors, these sort of what Rosie was talking about, these personal, social, and environmental aspects, which enable us to convert our resources into actual capabilities and, and functionings. So I think for education, it's really important that both capabilities and functionings matter. Nussbaum argues that only capabilities matter. Rebaines argues that both of them have to be kept in the frame, and I think for education that's absolutely right. We need to know the extent to which students are able to function in particular ways, which we regard as valuable for, for higher education. But the issue is that we can't focus only on functionings, and this is the point that Rosie was making with the, the, the comparison of, of, the, of the two starving men. Because we might have a situation where Functionings look broadly similar, but the underlying capabilities, the underlying opportunities are very different. And I've worked up an example from higher education. Um, so I've said, take Joanna and Lerato, two students studying agricultural economics at the University of the Free State. Both achieved an upper second class degree. So the, the functioning achievement is exactly the same. They both get an upper second. However, Joanna had the advantage of coming from a middle class family a parent who drove her to university each day, a home in a leafy, quiet suburb, and resources to, to support a range of confidence-enhancing leadership, extracurricular activities, and work-related networks. She certainly worked hard, and she deserved her results, 
and this is going to enable her to take up the opportunity of being an agriculture financial advisor with a large banking group. On the other hand, Lerato's mother is a domestic cleaner with very little formal education. Lerato had a government loan which was converted into a non-repayable bursary because of her good academic grades. But part of this loan uh, slash bursary is used to help her mother pay buy food, and it certainly does not allow for participation in extracurricular activities, even if she were not also required to help take care of three younger siblings and her grandmother. Moreover, she had to travel 10 kilometers every day by taxi from her home in a crime-ridden neighborhood to get to university and then study in her crowded house at night. Lecturers felt that she was much brighter than Joanna and deserved a distinction, but her circumstances meant that she only achieved an upper second. Without networks, this will make it hard for her to enter her chosen career of economist. So in the South African case, both young women have similar achievements, but their capabilities and their future aspirations are then very differently shaped. So Sen explains that even an exact tie between two persons, Joanna and Lerato, and achieved functions may still hide significant differences between the advantages of the respective persons. So this is why you need, I think, for education, both of these aspects uh, need uh, matter. Not only capabilities, not only functions, but bringing them, uh, bringing them together. She also has an argument around uh, capabilities and functionings. Uh, be, there being two steps. The first step is to agree that capabilities and functionings are at the core. The second step is to make decisions about which capabilities and functionings value. And she actually pushes that decision into one of the modules. So one of the modules is about selecting capabilities. And I think that's problematic. I think it's problematic for education. I think it's problematic generally. Uh, and I'll try and say a little bit about that. Um, I mean, well, you know, one of the problems with, with a very open-ended approach, which allows you to decide which capabilities matter, is in, condition, un, in circumstances of disadvantage, people are not necessarily going to fight for gender equity or fight against race discrimination and, and so on. So the next core feature, according to Rebains, is this means-end distinction, which Rosie's also touched on. The point being that unlike neoliberal claims about education, the end of higher education is not economic growth and it's not human capital formation, it's the well-being of people, people's quality of life. So that people are the ends of, of, of the development process and economic growth and other resources are simply the means to, to get them there. So it requires quite a significant shift away from this sort of dominant um, economistic way of thinking about higher education at, at the moment. And I think it's also quite an important counterweight and a countermeasure, and I think that's one of the important contributions. The third factor are the conversion factors, which Rosie touched on and I've touched on as well, how you can convert your resources into capabilities and functionings. So a bicycle might be a resource, a good quality school education might be a resource, and, and so on. Now, for some reason, um, I've put it in here, as her fifth essential element, she has uh, structures. And it's not entirely clear to me why she needs conversion factors and, and structures. But she writes about structural constraints that may affect different members of, uh, members of different groups. And she says these, these might be social, and she gives the example uh, which affect the employment opportunities of Dalits in India. 
I have to say that in, in the work that we do in education, we tend to locate structures under conversion factors. So we would see <coughs> structures of race, gender, and social class and in their intersection as conversion factors which will shape advantage or disadvantage for, for the students that we work with in higher education. But it occurred to me that perhaps that's because we work within the field of education, where in a, in a sense inequalities are always in front of you, and it might not be quite so, quite so uh, much the case in other areas. Um, so it might be that you need to keep structural constraints in place in order to give some traction to, to conversion factors. And the other thing, of course, that structural constraints do, which conversion factors might not do in quite the same way, is they introduce inequalities of power, even if indirectly. And this helps us to take up one of the criticisms of the capability approach is that it's very weak on power and the constraints generated by power. So I think that both core elements can probably be justified. I haven't quite worked out yet if it's a problem to collapse one into the other. I think for education, I, I don't think it is. Um, another of her core elements is the issue of human diversity, which Rose, Rosie has touched on. So in, in capabilitarian theories, diversity would be something that you would look at closely. And again, this resonates very well with education, notions of social exclusion, socials of inclusion, and so on, which groups are marginalized on what sort of basis, and so on. And then her sixth core element is that of, of agency. But she doesn't prescribe how much agency is, is required. So she regards it as what she calls a minimalistic claim, um, in that agency, she says, cannot simply be ignored and must be accounted for, but it could have a bigger or smaller ro role in capabilitarian um, theorizing. I think in education, we would tend to argue that having more agency is a good thing rather than having less agency. So it might be that in educational versions of capabilitarianism, agency might have rather a, a maximist rather than, than a minimalist role without at the same time forcing agency on people. Um, then, so, so those are a whole lot of core features. She then has a number of essential features which she says that the concepts alone don't construct a normative um, theory, what we ought to be doing, morally speaking. And um, it came out of Rosie's talk as well that capabilities and functionings are presented as neutral. No position is taken on, on what, what is good and what is bad. So she says that capabilitarianism entails an incomplete and underspecified normative theory. Uh, with regard to the good, she then distills what she describes as a handful of more precise claims. Uh, firstly, that both functionings and capabilities have intrinsic value, but we need to decide which matter, um, whether one or both in combination, that we need to specify which capabilities matter, and, and this happens quite a lot in, in education, um, so I think that is being attempted. And we need to recognize other factors which might not be captured by capabilities and functionings. So, for example, procedural fairness. So processes count as well, and this also seems important for education. What are the processes uh, through which or, or under which uh, capabilities are formed or, or distorted? And for me, it also allows us to pay attention to, to struggles. Once you look at process, it also allows you to think about the struggles towards more equal education and not simply um, a, a critique. Okay, so then I so I have two two broad disagreements with what Raven says. I mean, most of it I agree with. 
she identifies what she calls as three rather weak elements relating to the right. And I only want to look at one, that of normative individualism. And this might be the point at which I, I come unstuck, but I'm going to give it a go. The way in which um, she describes this reads to me like a normative ontology based in Western liberal philosophy. So she writes that the ultimate concern is the advantage of each and every affected individual. And the effects on other entities are only relevant insofar as and to the extent that they affect the interests of individuals. Now there's much that's intuitively, intuitively attractive about this, that individuals matter and that each and every person is, is important. Um, and Nussbaum, of course, says that just by being human, each of us is of equal moral worth and dignity, no matter what our status or position in society. And she's also quite clear, this is Nussbaum, where she says the flourishing of each person is prior to the flourishing of the group or the nation, which I think is a particular ontology. So my, my puzzle here is, does this exclude relational ontologies? If normative individualism is, is a core element, does this exclude relational ontologies? And, and I think it might do. Uh, but I also see this as a problem. If normative individualism excludes other ontologies, such as those advocated in African philosophy. And there's a wonderful example in, in a, a paper by Namaka uh, from West Africa. And she recounts the story of a photographer, Mark Beach, from P Pennsylvania who travels to Burkina Faso in, in West Africa to take a series of individual photographs for a commission project. And one of the people he wants to photograph is a woman called Sidhu Ouda, who's a local nurse. And she, she agrees to pose for the camera, and she, he sets up the camera, she poses. But before he can take the shot, she calls her four children to join her in the picture. So Beach says, okay, fine, we'll have another go. So he sets up the picture again, and just before he takes the shot, she calls the four children to join her. So what Beach does is he tries to sort of track with the camera so that he only catches subdue in, in the frame. But as he does this, they all move. So as fast as he tries to track just to get her in the frame, then the, then the whole family move. Um, and he says that he finally understood that to take a photograph of subdue was to take a photograph of her family. There was no distinction. She was only waiting for me to understand it as well, he says. So, Namaka wrote that Sibdu taught Beach community alliances and connectedness. In other words, there was Beach's ontology of what it meant to be a person, and there was Sibdu's uh, ontology of what it meant to be a person. So, what I'm try, trying to think about is, is would the notion of personhood be better in, in some way? And I turned to Thaddeus Metz, who writes, uh, who tries to construct a, 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 an African philosophy, a, a moral philosophy. And he explains that ontologically, in African moral theory, a person is a person through other people. So remember, Nussbaum is saying a person is prior to the community and prior to the nation. Metz is saying it doesn't, doesn't work like that in African philosophy, where a person is a person through other people. One's identity as a human being, causally and even metaphysically, depends on a community, so that there's an obligation to support the community's way of life and one's fellow human beings. So this version of solidarity, which is a much stronger version than Nussbaum's notion of, of affiliation, um, concerns the flourishing of others, respecting relationships, and care for the quality of everyone's life. This is what makes us a person. 
the more we do of this, the more of a person we are, and the more moral we are as a person. So to, the way to help another person is to foster her personhood. And then this would require fostering the capabilities and functions that support this view of personhood. So that the capability approach would, ha would have to take at least some, uh, some stand on, on some core features. So Nussbaum does this in her list, which is um, uh, contentious. Sen refuses to do this, and, and I'm quite ambivalent about this. Um, so there's a problem then in terms of the selection of capabilities and functionings not constituting part of the core, but being displaced uh, to this particular module, which you can populate with whatever capabilities and functions make sense in terms of whatever it is that you, you are looking at. And then what puzzles me further is that she has a module in her cartoon, this is Rebaine's, which she describes as the realm of ontological choices and explanatory theories and suggests that two capabilitarian scholars could indeed embrace very different views of human nature. And she uses the example of gender as a social ontological claim. But then my question is, but what if the ontological claim was substantively different from normative individualism in the core? Where, where would, then, would, would that then lead us? And I think this is a significant challenge to, to think about Western understandings and claims to completeness of, of knowledge and being in the face of different ontologies and epistemological diversity and richness. And I'm not sure where that leaves the, the CA um, and, and the normative individualism, but it does seem that it might run the risk of being seen as another colonizing liberal Western theory. So adapting an example from Metz, a student in higher education could not fully develop her own human capabilities if she had failed to value relationships of solidarity and identity with others such that their capabilities to learn were also advanced with hers. If more advantaged students develop their human capabilities while at university, while their fellow disadvantaged students did not, strictly speaking, the advantage could not be considered fully human, however wide their capability sets. Solidarity would be compromised. And if we follow this approach, I mean, that seems to me like a really large shout of neoliberalism, which pushes in completely the opposite direction. If we follow this approach, Met suggests that the most important capability might be the capacity to prize relationships of identity and solidarity. And these are intrinsically valuable. So alongside everything else, relationships are actually intrinsically valuable. And I think it partly echoes some of the struggles and concerns inside the capability approach with notions of collective capabilities and, and group capabilities. And, and there's a bit more argument around that, but I'm going to move on. And then the second um, worry that I have is um, the economic impact on inequalities, including in education. So remember the capabilities and functions are non-neutral. There is attention to resources, but the argument is what we really need to look at is people's capabilities and functions, all, all of which I understand and agree with. And of course, um, you know, resources will, will come in indirectly in, in some of the other elements of the core. My difficulty is how does all of this work in economic systems, which is pra pra practically every economic system in the world in which we currently live, where wealth gaps are widening and inequality is rising. And it seems to me that failure to address economic capabilities as part of a core seems to risk severing capabilitarianism from development ethics 
and debates about the inequality of power and inequalities of economic power. And of course, inequalities of economic power may also constrain people's political participation or their participation, which sense is vital for choosing and selecting capabilities. So you've got a bit of a kind of a, a chicken and egg situation going there. Um, and Paul Krugman, writing for the States, I think puts it really well, where he says, think about it. Do talented children in low-income American families have the same chance to make use of their talent to get the right education, to, to pursue the right career path as those born higher up the ladder? Of course not. So Cropper argues for it, an, an anchoring of um, development ethics and capabilities in political economy. And I, I think there's something interesting in that. So I understand that income and wealth and money matter only insofar as they enable, to people, enable people to obtain what they need to live in a, in a fully human way. They, they're not the ends. I understand that perfectly. And I understand that the capability approach is not resources. It's not foregrounding GDP or income. But the question I have, and this faces us every day um, in the context where I work, is what if you don't have access to the resource in the first place? Never mind whether or not you can ride the bicycle. You, have, you, you don't have a hope in hell of ever getting a bicycle because you are simply too poor and too marginalized in the society. What if you don't have the resource of the wheelchair to enable your mobility, of the book, of the food to eat? So it seems to me that there's a real danger that the significance of actually having economic resources may be overlooked, especially for countries where inequalities are deep and poverty is widespread. So for example, research in South Africa um, shows that students don't leave socioeconomic inequalities behind when they come to university. So the 2016 Student Engagement Survey found, amongst other things, that only 15% of students never worry about day-to-day -day living expenses, and 85% do. And only 18% never worry about how they will pay university fees, which are extraordinarily high in South Africa. And that 69% of the students indicated that they ran out of food without being able to buy more. And 23% indicated this happens most days or every day. So, and these experiences of financial stress seriously affect their studies. It affects participation in extracurricular activities. 62% of them never participated. 70% never spent money on academic study materials because they simply couldn't afford it. And there's a really good example, I think, of how, how this works to affect um, identities and, and how you perceive yourself uh, from Kanyani. And she, she writes about the intersection of race, income, and shame. And she says, but walk into an institution of higher learning, go to the financial aid queues, who do you find there? Of course, you find black students. The humiliation of having to prove year in and year out that you are poor never really leaves you. Or taking Tombi, this is an, an, an actual student, who arrives at university with no financial aid confirmed, but begins applying for numerous bursaries, spending money on forms, her school transcript, copies of various identity documents, her mother's payslips, and affidavits to prove that she is financially needy. She must then spend money on a taxi to take the forms to the post office. No replies are forthcoming by the time the university informs her that she must settle her fees account or her examination results will be withheld. So she is caught in a hopeless cycle. Without her results, she cannot continue trying to secure financial aid. And it's not surprising that she then finds it very difficult to focus on her academic work. 
Um, in the Maranto project, which Monica is working with me on, an inclusive um, higher education learning outcomes, www.maranto.com, um, all the students we speak to tell us that finances are a source of anxiety and concern to them, which they cannot put aside on a day-to-day -day basis. That every single student told us that it's, a, that it's a challenge for them. And they said the university also forgets that to attend lectures, you must first shower, eat, brush your teeth, and so on. You need access to basic toiletries like deodorant, and women need to be able to buy sanitary towels. There's never money to go home. One student explained those things are taken lightly, but they affect students. And as to Thurborn notes, there's not, I'm probably there now, uh, that there's not much money cannot buy. And for him, this represents the foundational dimension of equality. And he points to the danger of decoupling um, resources from what he calls existential equality. And in the same way as Nancy Fraser criticizes the separation of recognition and, and redistribution as fundamental aspects of justice. So even if resources on their own are not enough to tell us about people's capabilities and functionings, if they do not even exist, how are capabilities and functionings to, to be formed in the first place? How are agency goals to be developed when they are continuously thwarted by, by resource inequality so that we have unequal resources to act? So I rather wonder then if a sufficiency or threshold of economic resources Perhaps Sen's notion of basic capabilities, which Des Gasber includes in his six core elements of the approach, might be some way to work with this without returning to a resource, uh, resources approach. Overall, the point is that leaving the selection of capabilities entirely open may not work well, certainly not in education. So Thurborn proposes three broad dimensions of inequality, the vital, the existential, and resource inequality. And what I'm trying to think through is if we were to place these three dimensions in the module on the selection of capabilities as, as a required frame, after which any other selection can be optional, might this take us closer to the normative vision of a good, rich human life in which education and other inequalities were reduced and, and, and diminished? Right, I'm going to race through some empirical examples. Um, in both of these, in the examples which I'm, I don't have time to develop, but I'll give you the references at the end, uh, the one looking at employability, the other at gender, you can see the articulation of the core capabilities and functionings, agency, the means in uh, distinction, the conversion factors, the structures, um, which capabilities to select, and, and so on. So in the, in the employability uh, project, what we did was we tried to develop a notion of graduate employability firstly as sort of a function of complex intersecting and co-determining factors. So we proposed this intersectional approach which looks at the intersections of the personal, the social external and the social university which work in ways to, to diminish capabilities or to expand them. So this, this is coming out of the empirical um, data that we worked with. And what, what we would argue from this project and others is that the what the capability approach enables us to see is that more choices and more opportunities are available to some students at some university than others, and that employability and individual choice making do not operate under fair educational and social conditions. And it's quite clear in the South African case that historically advantaged elite universities con confer much more of an educational dividend on their students 
than the historically disadvantaged and rurally based universities, which, which are by and large still places where only black students go. So, so what then be, uh, comes out of the, uh, came out very strongly in the data, for example, were things like uh, the impact of social capital. And one of the students put it really well, which she said, if you're from a poor background, basically you've got problems. She said, people that I've been uh, with, was at school with, you can see they, they're set from the get-go. They've got the contacts, they've got the networks. So you may be lucky and have a contact or two in a very influential position. It's not impossible, it does happen, but the likelihood isn't strong. So, so we saw social capital operating as a very, very significant um, conversion factor for students being able to turn their university education into employment. And put simply, poorer families cannot provide as many opportunities as richer families. And these differences in turn influence um, who is more employable. And we found these, these differences working, uh, working in lots of ways. In, in terms of the choice of university, all the students at Vitz, the elite university, had chosen to go there. The University of Vendor, the rural black students, 90% of the students had not chosen to go there. It's also shaped by field of study, and that's not a level, level playing field, because to get into the sciences, engineering, and medicine, you, re, you need really good maths and physics maths from university, and very few black students have it. Um, and then those are the same fields which make you more employable and generate more, more income. But if you've had a really bad poor schooling, you don't, um, you don't have that kind of opportunity. And then we also found that um, the poorest students didn't get involved in extracurricular activities and didn't have a sense of how this might enable them to build some kind of personal capital. They didn't have the time, they were concentrating on study, they lived off campus, they couldn't get to these kinds of things. But universities kind of assume that, you know, put the menu in front of students and everybody will somehow get involved. So universities could be doing very much more than that. Um, and we also found that university reputation counted in, enormously with employers. Basically, employers recruit from a handful of about five or six of the 26 public universities in South Africa. The rest, they don't go near. And in fact, somebody at Univent said, the problem is when we approach employers to come to the university, they, they say, where is that? How am I supposed to get there? Can I fly? So she said, they, you know, they don't come anywhere near the university, unlike this, which is in in Kauteng, Johannesburg, and, and so on. So you've got access to far more. So based on the data, um, these were the four capabilities that we identified. Our subject knowledge, critical thinking, and autonomy, economic opportunities, affiliation, and application, and, and aspiration. But looking at this, this again, I can see um, economic opportunities on its own might quite not get at the issue of, of the resources, of economic capabilities. So I'm, I need to think about that a little bit more. And then the second <coughs> empirical example is from the Gender Empowerment and Agency Project in Higher Education, where we collected um, life grids, qualitative interviews, did a survey, and, and, and went back and, and, and spoke to a small group of women again. And here we were interested in the contribution of university education to women's agency, and, and what kind of got in the way, way of that, what kind of barriers could we find uh, in universities. We weren't expecting that the women would be homogenous, and in fact, we, we expected to find differences across intersectionalities of gender, race, and class. And I've done a table, I realize these are probably a bit small now, for this room, of just eight of the women, and across just three dimensions. The actual table is much bigger. 
So just across dimensions of ethnicity, type of school, Model C is like a former white semi-public school, um, and mother's occupation. Nadia, Sarah, and Jessica, who are the, the three uh, white women in the sample, um, come from slightly different backgrounds amongst the three of them, and then from, from the, the five um, black women in the sample. But of the black women, two of them are more um, middle class. Three of them, Danae, Katiri, and Tumi, come from very working class backgrounds. So there's no assumed homogeneity amongst white women or amongst black women or amongst middle class women. What we found is that without exception, all the women across all of the data sets, all the interviews, the surveys, and so on, acknowledge the instrumental value of higher education, its intrinsic value in expanding their love of subject knowledge, and also for some, its social value in potentially improving the lives of their extended families. Um, so, for example, one student explained getting an education, getting a life, getting established, starting your career, and just being independent, you can stand up for yourself now. The more you are educated, the more liberated your mind is, and you see things in a different way. You realize, my goodness, there's still more that I can do. So university had enabled these women to reflect on their aspirations and, and to slide those aspirations uh, forward. And the mobility pathways for the three um, black uh, women uh, from working class homes was, was the most dramatic. The three uh, girls whose mothers were domestic workers. But the data also shows that they face much steeper hurdles. You know, we can't get dramatic about this. So working class black women enter higher education with thinner resources, and their freedoms to take up development opportunities are also much more constrained. What was interesting, though, and slightly, caught us slightly by surprise, is that university conditions and relationships with the university did not seem to foster a critical awareness of gender inequalities among students. So what we found in the data is that women tolerated everyday harassment, the, you know, the name-calling, um, uh, sexist comments, and so on. Um, and th these women all had agency. It's not that they were victims in some way. They, they had agency. They were acting towards their value goals. But they didn't necessarily uh, demonstrate what Sen would call critical agency in relation to gender structures, even though they were very aware of race and the diversity of values among students. Uh, and we found that bodily integrity in particular, freedom from sexual harassment, was tricky to tease out given the prevalence of gender violence in the society so that the campus is and its experienced as a relatively space and protected space for these women. So verbal comments by men were seen as a problem, but in relation to serious physical harm, where rape statistics are shockingly high, probably amongst the highest in the world, and where violence against women is a widespread social problem, this was not something that the women were going to spend too much time on. So they make relative judgments in a gender violence society, again highlighting the intersectionality of conversion factors and context. That gendered remarks on campus are bothersome, but they aren't um, serious. The difficulty is that these kind of gendered remarks are what support a gender-unfriendly campus culture and one where sexism is tolerated, even though the university is, much, is a much safer space for them than the neighborhood or even the home. I don't know if I'm going to mention the Negro feminism. There, you know, there's certainly, uh, you know, part of this might be attributed to where women are, are at their lives in, in the moment in the space of higher education, which they experience as expanding their opportunities and agency. This may change in future in the workplace and in families. And the challenge is that they might then be less well-equipped at that point by their university education. 
which you know which has tolerated uh, sexism and harassment and so on. There were certain exceptions. Um, so Bushki, for example, came from a strongly matriarchal family. Her grandmother had been a builder. She grew up knowing she, knowing she could do anything she wanted. She refused to be pigeonholed in terms of her clothes, her sexuality, the kind of music she liked listening to, and so on. So her capabilities were shaped by conversion factors of family. The degree she was studying, she was studying agricultural economics, which furthered her gender awareness. So she said, perhaps lecturers reckon men know more about tractors than I would. <laughs> that wasn't the case. Her leadership experiences and so on. Um, nonetheless, we found that women don't question the kind of, or aren't aware of the repetition effects of everyday gendered comments, and they dismiss these as jokes, and we've got examples of it. Or they, they've got these contradictions. So we've got Toomey saying, this guy, he's doing his CA, he's chartered accountancy, and he said he doesn't want to get married to another CA. And when I asked why, he said, no, it's, what's the point if I am a CA and you are a CA? No, my position has to be bigger than yours. You have to be beneath me somehow. And she notes that sometimes we as women allow that, but then she also says, our university has a lot of respect for women, but it's not challenging this young man's uh, values. So no, I don't think in terms of gender and everything that I've been affected. And then immediately adds, beside that thing of guys thinking they can own you, but she, she's not drawing all the critical um, connections. So from the data, we extrapolated four and then refined them as seven, and I think they can probably be refined further. In this case, um, seven um, capabilities for gender agency and empowerment. Having a higher education, economic security, voice, affiliation, aspirations, tenacity, and then gender awareness, which I ended up splitting into bodily safety and to bodily integrity. And of course, capabilities are always multidimensional. These things are always working together. And I split the gender awareness thing because there was no, when I was trying to develop this rough um, heuristic, Um, and it's, it's, it's quite crude in terms of to what extent these nine women that we, we interviewed for a third time in 2015 valued each of these capabilities. And it was absolutely the case that every single one of them valued bodily safety. I mean, it would just be quite crazy to say that they didn't value the safety from, from physical attack in particular. But they valued bodily integrity far, far lower than they did bodily safety. So. So these contradictions, so gender awareness is a capability, but it comprises both bodily safety and bodily integrity. So in both cases, hopefully you can see the articulations of conversion factors, capabilities, functions, agency, um, and, and so on, working, working together and enabling one to, to tell a story about inequalities of particular kinds in higher education. I want to end uh, very, very quickly I'm just making some points about what I think is the added value of the capability approach and what it might bring to higher education research. So first of all, it seriously challenges the narrowness of only a human capital approach. It doesn't discount human capital. In our work with disadvantaged students, it really doesn't make sense to, to, to say, oh, they're so instrumental, they want jobs when they finish higher education. Yeah, they want jobs when they finish higher education. They have younger siblings to support, they've got loans to pay back, and so on. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that they value, or even the most important thing which is valued. So instead, Capabilities offers an alternative imaginary which counters microeconomics, which defines opportunity sets in the space of commodities. Instead, opportunity sets are defined in the space of capabilities. The approach foregrounds freedoms and meaningful choices. 
which enable us to make a judgment about how good a deal each person has. But freedom, Sen also emphasizes that freedom is good for society. A good society is also a society of freedom. <coughs> There's a focus on plurality and the multidimensional aspects of a life with well-being and agency. We don't all choose and want the same things, and the capability approach allows for that. So it's not prescriptive about a comprehensively good life, but I worry about the, the economic and the personal stuff. Um, the approach requires that we address intersecting socially constructed enablers or obstacles to the capabilities of humans to flourish and to develop. And capability gaps alert us to structures and conversion factors which are standing in the way of people's development. Um, Rosie touched on this at the beginning of her talk. Um, the capability approach locates higher education in conversation with development ethics and what kind of development. So not just higher education and conversation with itself, but higher education also looking out to a conversation with development ethics, which then also asks us to think about what kind of development for whom and so on. There's a concern with change. So I think the sociology of education is brilliant at critique and really bad at saying, okay, so what do we actually do about it? But I think capabilities enables us to develop that critique, but also to be doing something about it. So what do we do about it question? I think hum the human development values of empowerment, agency, participation, and sustainability anchor well-being and quality of life approaches so that, they, so that capabilities doesn't get domesticated and divorced from these underpinning values of human development with, with which it's so closely aligned. And I think while the capabilities approach might seem more robust for developing countries, in my view it holds relevance across global south and global north contexts not least where in both cases there's an increasing mix of elite and less advantaged universities and widening inequalities. So it has, in my view, the theoretical and empirical potential to scale what Naidu calls the walls and the bridges of higher education, which currently fracture um, higher education globally and nationally. But I think the approach needs to work with complementary theories, so political economy, feminist approaches, sociology of education, and so on, to name just three. Thank you.